Well, good morning again, church. Welcome here to Linden Alliance. It's so good that you've joined us today. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts, and today we're in the region of Syria. I've mentioned this before, but uh, unlike a normal series through a book where we travel through, you know, chapter at a time or verse by verse, we're actually going through this book kind of by region at a time or location at a time. So today we find ourselves in Syria, uh, which spans from chapters 9 through to the end of chapters 12, and it actually spans over four years of time has passed in here. And so today we're going to be reading some of these ch- chunks of scripture in between. We won't be reading uh, all these chapters, but we're going to look at some things like Paul's uh, conversion. We're going to look at Peter's ministry and Barnabas's ministry, and we're going to look at, you know, Peter being miraculously released from prison by God. So we're going to look at these things today and how God worked in the early church and how he continues to work in his church today. So let's start with chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 19. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found out there uh, who any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners in, to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come, place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. There's quite a bit that happens here. If we go to that first map uh, image, I put this up here today, because it helps me a lot to kind of understand where everything is. Um, You can see Jerusalem in the bottom there, and Damascus is kind of in the top right. And so he's traveling up there to arrest people that belong to the way. It's interesting, chapter 9, verse 2, is the first time that we hear that phrase for Christians the way. And 
any time in Acts from here on out that mentions it about four or five times, that phrase. It's talking about the persecution of Christians. And it, I was trying to find a good verse, you know, for this type, this series. We've called it This is the Way. I was trying to look through all the times it says it. I'm like, none of these are really good verses to use as like a sermon series scripture reference because it always talks about the persecution of Christians. But Saul was merciless in his mission to eradicate the way. According to Galatians chapter 1, Paul, when he's in Damascus and he leaves, he travels to a region of Arabia, which was south, um, southeast of Damascus, and he stays there for three years. And when he came back, we read in, verse, or in chapter 9, he comes back and the Jewish leaders in Damascus try to kill Saul. And so that's when Saul is lowered in a basket over the wall and he flees to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jerusalem, the same fate's awaiting him because the Jewish leaders there are also upset at him and they try to kill him as well. And so he gets to Jerusalem thinking it's going to be better and he goes and tries to find the disciples and they are terrified. They do not want to meet with him. Three years has gone by since his conversion, yet his reputation of someone that's come to kill the Christians is still there, and the apostles, the disciples, are terrified to meet with him. So they meet with some of them, and, and then they meet with Paul, and they figure out, okay, like the, these Jewish leaders are trying to kill me again. And so they take him to Caesarea, and they put him on a boat and send him back up to Tarsus. There is so much that happens there. <laughs> But all this, Paul goes back to Tarsus, which is where he grew up, where he's from. Uh, and we, if we jump from chapter 9, if we jump to chapter 11, we read about a man named Barnabas and how their stories actually overlap. So we're just going to jump ahead quickly, but we'll be back. Actually, we'll go to that second picture I have of the map. So those who belong to the way, chapter 11 we read that it spans the you know, because of persecution, the Christians are, are fleeing and they're running and they're going all the way up to, to Antioch, which is in the top right there. And so this is where uh, we pick up the story in chapter 11, verse 20. It says, Some of them went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, telling them of the good news about the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News traveled to Jerusalem, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God and what had done, uh, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord and with their, all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Antioch and Tarsus are sort of close. If we go to that last map I have there, uh, you can sort of see they're a, they're a little bit close. But it was still a travel to get from Antioch down and then you had to go up to Tarsus. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever gotten really terrible directions from someone for their house. Uh, some years ago, I was traveling with some friends, and we were in Saskatchewan, and we called a friend that we were going to see, and we are like, hey, where do you live? We're like, just coming up to your town. 
And she's like, okay, when you get into town, go over the train tracks, go three miles south, past the big tree, and then you're going to turn left, and then it's going to be the second farm on the right. And if you hit the cemetery, you've gone way too far. And I was, you know, I was living in Surrey. This was like the first time I had been out to the prairies, and I was so confused. I'm like, can't, just, can't you just give me your address? She's like, I have no idea what my address is. This is how you get to our house. So, sometime later, once we were already moving in, or living in Alberta, Aaron's brother was coming to visit us, and uh, we were living in Three Hills at the time. And while he's on his way, I had the thought, I'm like, Aaron, did you give him our address? He's like, no, I don't think so. So I, I called him. I'm like, hey, like, do you have our address? And he's like, nope. I'm like, do you want our address? He's like, well, I figured, you know, I'll just get to town and I'll find you eventually. And I feel like that's what Barnabas has done here. He knows that Paul is somewhere in Tarsus because he was part of the disciples that sent him off. And he just kind of gets there and he, you know, roams around. Maybe he had a donkey that, you know, made a certain noise. I don't know. But he gets there and he finds uh, Saul, Paul, and he brings him back to Antioch. And it's, I mean... I don't know if you've had some crazy directions like that, trying to find somebody's house. But we, and we don't know exactly what happened there, but it happened. And Paul is now in Antioch, and they, it says that the church continued to meet together for over a year, and they taught great numbers of people. What's really interesting about that last part of verse 26 is that the, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The fact that those who belonged to the way were first called Christians here in Antioch is really significant. Because this church was a mixture of Jews and non-Jews. It was a mixture of people that spoke both Aramaic and Greek. These were people that didn't have culture in common. They didn't have a language in common. They didn't have a heritage in common. But they had Christ in common. And they were called Christians or Christ ones first in Antioch, because these, this was the first multi-ethnic church. It's all they had in common was Christ. And now that's common for us in churches today. What we have in common is Christ. I'm sure if we went around, we would see how diverse we are, our backgrounds, our heritage, our culture. And what's, what unites us is Christ. This is why we're called Christians. Maybe that must have been a difficult church to minister to, though. This first church that doesn't really know how to go about living together. You know, these Jews and non-Jews who, for their whole lives, are told that they do not associate with, you know, the Jewish people do not associate with non-Jewish people. You don't meet in the same house. You don't eat their food. And we're going to see a little bit about Peter in that here shortly. But they, God would have called them out of that comfort zone. I don't know if this has happened to you, if God has called you out of, uh, out of your circle, much like the early church uh, did beyond their own people. We can get comfortable with our friends or with our, our group that we always associate with. And there's nothing really wrong with that. But we shouldn't be exclusive with who we associate with. God has called me out of my comfort zone many times, and it's in those times where I've stepped out that I've found the most growth 
Sometimes I've learned things to take back to that group. Sometimes I've learned that that group wasn't actually healthy for me. And that to grow in my faith and to grow in God, I needed that push out of that comfort zone. Often God calls us out of our comfort zone to teach us something. Often he calls us out of that space of that, uh, you know, circle that we find ourselves in often so that he can teach us and so that we can grow. And that, we see that a lot with the church in Antioch. We don't hear much more about them, though, throughout Acts or even in the New Testament. There's not a whole lot more about that church, which maybe is a good thing. Often in the later letters that Paul writes to churches, it's because something isn't quite right. But what we know is that this is the place where they were first called Christians. Now at the same time that this is happening, at the same time that Paul and Barnabas are up in Antioch and Tarsus in that area, at the same time Peter is doing God's work as well. We read about Peter in, back in chapter 9, verses 32, all the way into the middle of chapter 11, and then again in chapter 12. And we find Peter spreading the gospel in, in Lydda and Joppa, which were towns on the coast. And word was getting out about what God was doing through Peter there, which included raising a woman from the dead in Joppa. Because of that specific event and other miracles that were happening, Peter, uh, word got out about Peter, so much so that word got out to a man in Caesarea who was a centurion, he was a Roman guard, and a centurion means that he oversaw a hundred men, another hundred Roman soldiers. And it tells us that this man, this uh, centurion named Cornelius, was a God-fearing man, him and his entire family. And in a vision, God spoke to Cornelius to send men to Joppa to bring Peter back. And as these men were on their way, God gives Peter a vision about not being afraid to eat unclean animals. And so God says in this vision at the end of it in Acts Chapter 10, verse 15 to 16. God says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and it says the sheet was taken back to heaven. Three times God said, Don't call anything impure or unclean that I have made clean. God is clearly preparing Peter for something here, and he's not sure what that means. In fact, Peter's response is, Surely not, Lord. I will not eat anything unclean. But God says it three times, clearly preparing him for something. And, and at the end of this vision, these men show up at his door, and they're looking for him. And the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter, and, they, and he says, There are men looking for you downstairs. Go with them. I've sent them. So he gets downstairs, and he's, you know, you're, I know you're looking for me. Where are we going? Well, we're going back to Caesarea. There's a man named Cornelius. So they travel and they go to, to Caesarea and they get to Cornelius' house. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. And this vision that God gave Peter was in relation to that. To not be afraid to go into a Gentile's house to eat with him. The Jewish culture would have said that made Peter unclean. The Jewish culture would have said, you don't go into their house, you don't eat with them. 
and then because then you'll be unclean. But they get there, and Peter gets in there, and he speaks to them. He shows up, and in this house, and they're like, "You have a word from us. God has told us that you're going to speak to us." Maybe that's <laughs> happened to you. I don't know if you've gotten to somewhere and people are like, "All right, so what do you have?" I don't know the pressure that would have been on Peter there. He didn't expect that. But he gets in and he starts sharing about the gospel, about Jesus and all that he has done. And the Holy Spirit comes on these people as they are praying and things happen. And it's amazing. And Peter gets back to Jerusalem and he tells everybody what's happened and they're upset with him. They're like, how could you go into a Gentile's house and eat with him? He's not Jewish. You're unclean. And Peter speaks in chapter 11, verse 15. And he tells them what happened. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come at us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus. Sorry. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love how he says that in verse 17. Who am I to stand in God's way? Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was with him on earth and walking with him, but Peter was a man to act quick, and to think second. A man to say something quickly or to, to jump out of the boat to swim to shore because he sees Jesus. To take out a sword and cut off somebody's ear when they're trying to arrest Jesus. He was somebody always to act first and to think second. But God uses Peter over and over again as a great teacher to bring many into his kingdom. If you remember our, when we first started this series a few weeks ago, Peter was the one speaking as the Holy Spirit came down, and everybody speaking in different languages. God made Peter a great teacher, regardless of his past. We see that with Paul, too. And we're going to hear more about him later on in Acts. But Paul was a significant member in, in the spread of the gospel. I mean, our, most of our New Testament is written letters from Paul. But I just love how Peter says, who am I to stand in God's way? If God's going to move here, who am I to get in the way of that? Who are any one of us to stand in God's way? Because of that posture that Peter had when we jump ahead to chapter 12, we understand a little bit more about what was going on. In chapter 12, we read about a king, King Herod, who started to arrest and kill Christians. So in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, uh, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial, which never really ended well. Four squads of four soldiers each. King Herod must have known that Peter was a man of God and that this was somebody that he really needed to watch over here. 
This is King Herod. He was uh, Herod Agrippa I. Uh, He was the grandson of Herod the Great. And his sister was the one who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. This King Herod was partly Jewish and, and part Roman as well. And so the Romans appointed him to rule over most of Palestine area, which included the, tor- the territories of Galilee, Judah, um, Samaria. And he persecuted the Christians in order to please the Jewish people. James and John were two of Jesus' original disciples as well, alongside Peter. And they had asked Jesus for special recognition when they got to his kingdom. We read about that in Mark 10. But Jesus had said that to be a part of his kingdom it would mean suffering for him. And they both experienced this. James, it says, we just read, that he was put to death by the sword. And John later was exiled to an island. And while Peter was in prison, we read in chapter 12, verse 5, it says that the church was earnestly praying for him. And I love how verses 6 to 17 unfold. Because what happened not only was a shock to Peter, but those gathered who were praying for him as well. This is our last big chunk of scripture that I'm going to read. So I just want to read verses 6 to 17. It says, The night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, he was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. I imagine, you know, angel kicked him. Get up, come on, let's go. Uh, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 9, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they walked the length of, length of a, one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people were gathered and were praying, earnestly. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they said. But when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be just his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. I think that's crazy to think about, not only how he was rescued from prison, but what happened immediately after. He thinks he's seeing a vision. He thinks that it's not real, but as soon as the angel leaves and he realizes what happens, he's like, oh, well, their house is right here. Let me just go knock. He didn't know that they were praying for him there. He didn't know what was going on inside that house. But he knew that it was a safe place, and so he knocked. And there was, <laughs> the servant, just so excited that it's him, doesn't even open the door. And 
this, uh, these people as they're gathered and they're praying for his release. Maybe they're praying for the trial. It doesn't really tell us. But then there he is at the door knocking. Now, did they doubt that God w- could work that fast? Did they doubt or question you know, how God was going to work? Did they maybe think that it was going to be at the trial, that it was going to go well, and that he wasn't going to be put to death? We don't know what they were praying for. We don't know what they were thinking. But surely this is not what they had in mind. How often do we pray for one thing when God moves in another way? Or when we ask for one thing, God answers some, some way else. Do we limit what God can do when we pray? He is more than able to do anything. He can do it. He has done it. Like Peter said earlier in chapter 11, who am I to stand in God's way? Who am I to deny what the Lord can do? Right? Who am I to question what he's doing? God worked in the early church in many miraculous ways, and I wish that we could really spend more and more time on this. And I would encourage you all to to be reading through the book of Acts as we're going through it right now, because there is so many of these stories of healings, of deliverance, of hard hearts turning to Jesus like Saul. I mean, he was a man who's willing and was killing Christians, arresting them when God got a hold of his heart. Who are we to stand in God's way? God converted the hardest of hearts. He healed the paralyzed people. He raised the dead. The gospel was spreading to Gentiles. Prayers were answered as the church was praying. And the gospel message continued to spread far and wide. Now, God still works like this today. Hard hearts are still being softened. People are still healed. The gospel is still spreading to unreached people groups in this world that have never heard of Jesus. And Christians under persecuted are still being delivered. So who are we to deny what he can do? Who are we to stand in his way of what he is doing? I really love how Peter said that. They were so upset about what he had done, and he just said, who am I to really get in God's way? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but we really need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leadings, to his direction, to his calling, to ask people to come alongside us. You know, Barnabas was in Antioch, and, and he knew that he couldn't, minister that church by himself, and so he goes and gets Paul. Peter knows that that there's others in the church working for him, and he goes and finds them when he gets out of prison. We need to be worshiping God, not with just a part of our heart, but with our entire lives. And we need to be ready to be used by him in great ways, far beyond what we can expect, or far beyond what we might think he's going to do. Today we're going to
be partaking in communion together again. And I'll invite elders to come up and, uh, and get that ready. But as I was reading through and studying this, these passages the last few weeks, what really, stood out, what really stood out to me was Peter. Who am I to deny what God can do? There's a song that has been stuck in my head for over a month. It's called He is More Than Able by Elevation Worship. And that's what the bridge says. It says, who am I to deny what the Lord can do? Because he is more than able. God worked many miraculous ways, and he is still working in these ways. We are still hearing stories of healing, of deliverance. Next week uh, is going to be Thanksgiving. I'm going to be with my family in BC for that weekend, but we're going to have a testimony Sunday or a sharing Sunday here. And we have already some people lined up, and this week I filmed uh, a testimony from, from Donna Carlson, and I got to sit with her afterwards and hear more of her story, which I would encourage you to ask her more about as well. And it, it just, you know, it was amazing to see how God is working still today and how God continues to work like he did in the early church years. Today we're going to partake in communion, and, and I'll invite the worship team to, to lead us in worship. And communion is a symbolic way to, to show that we uh, belong to Jesus and that we call him our Lord and Savior. And we acknowledge that Jesus lived a perfect life and died for our sins. And so we partake together regularly to remember these things. So today I invite everyone to partake together who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. And you can come up and you can take bread in the cup and go back to your seat and then I'll come back up and we'll pray and partake all together. And I mentioned this, I think, last time at communion, but Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 to, to really examine our hearts before we partake together. And so I'll ask, and I'll put this out there, that as you come up to examine your heart, to see how God is calling you or where God is working in your hearts. What is it that you need to hand over to him? What is an idol or what's a sin that's weighing on your shoulders? Give that to him. He is willing. He is able. Who are we to be in his way? So come. Come.